Southwest Airlines has canceled thousands of flights in the last few days, leaving holiday travelers stranded. There are all of these wrinkles and layers contributing to what is an unprecedented meltdown and one of the worst airline meltdowns in the last decade. It's Tuesday, December 27th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. In North Carolina, parents can lose custody of children for failing to pay debts related to foster care. We're telling parents and children that we're going to sever a relationship permanently because someone didn't have enough money to pay child support. That is absolutely wrong. I think it's immoral. In some cases, the parents are not even informed of these bills. And the FBI recently released its statistics on hate crimes across the country, but researchers say the data is flawed. It's 401. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Ongoing airline chaos, spoiled holiday plans, and deepening frustration for stranded passengers. It's prompting a federal investigation into what's going wrong. Today, total canceled flights into and out of the U.S. top 3,000, most of them from Southwest Airlines, which says the disruptions will go on into the week. They cite bad weather, but the pilots' union says it's the airline's own outdated systems. President Biden says his administration will make sure airlines are held accountable. NPR's Keith reports. What started with a record-setting winter storm snowballed into an operational disaster for Southwest. Crews out of place, thousands of flights canceled, lost and abandoned luggage piling up at airports, and customers calling for help getting busy signals instead of answers. In a tweet, President Biden said his administration is working to ensure airlines are held accountable. The Department of Transportation said it is concerned by Southwest's unacceptable rate of cancellations and delays and reported lack of prompt customer service. In a statement, Southwest says it has let down its customers and employees and, quote, our heartfelt apologies for this are just beginning. Full disclosure, this reporter experienced all of these issues firsthand. Tamara Keith, NPR News. A historic blizzard in Buffalo, New York, is tapering off, but there's already talk of potential flood risk from four feet of melting snow later this week as the weather warms. But today, the focus remains on search and rescue as first responders make their way around and warn they will be delayed. 28 people are confirmed dead from the storm there. Erie County Executive Mark Polencars is asking residents to cooperate and stay home, but says reinforcements are needed. 100 military police are being brought in, as well as additional troops from the New York State Police Department are coming in to manage traffic control because it has become so evident that too many people are ignoring the ban. After days of closures, grocery stores are starting to reopen, spurring some people to venture out for needed supplies. Hospitals in China under intense strain amid an explosion in coronavirus cases. NPR's Emily Fang reports Omicron is spreading largely unchecked as Beijing relaxes longstanding lockdowns. Emergency rooms in hospitals across the country, even in the capital Beijing, continue to report two to three times the normal number of patients. Ambulance services have been stretched so thin, people calling for help have been told it could be a several hours wait. This emergency room nurse says her hospital finally received about a dozen new ambulances to cope with demand. They need more, but Beijing is still in the midst of procuring them. China did not accelerate the stockpiling of medical resources before the latest surge. Emily Fang, NPR News. It's NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts lawmakers say they are hopeful that a medical aid in dying law could be passed in the new year. A ballot measure allowing terminally ill people to end their lives with medication was defeated by a narrow margin a decade ago. State Representative Jim O'Day of West Boylston is sponsoring a bill in the House to legalize the practice, and he says the pandemic might have softened some people's stance on the idea. We as a community, we as a commonwealth, we as a country, saw over the last two and a half years, three years, the incredible levels of of pain and agony and people dying from this horrible pandemic. Earlier this month, the state's highest court ruled that there is no constitutional right to physician-assisted suicide and said that issue is best left to the legislature. Nominations are now being accepted for the 2023 John F. Kennedy Profile and Courage Award. The honor recognizes elected officials who've stood up for what was right despite possible personal or political consequences. This year, there were five recipients, including Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and U.S. Representative Liz Cheney. Former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney received the award in 2021. The wind at the summit of Great Blue Hill outside Boston seems to be getting slower. That's according to almost 130 years of data collected at the Blue Hills Meteorological Observatory. WBUR's Barbara Moran reports on what this mysterious slowdown might mean for wind energy. Nobody's sure why the wind is slowing down. It could be a local reason, like forests growing back, or it could be tied to global atmospheric shifts, like the wavering jet stream that we're seeing with climate change. Michael Yakino is chief scientist at the Blue Hills Observatory. So certainly it has implications for understanding climate change, but it can also have implications for generating uh, wind power, for example, if this is going on at a larger scale in the places where, uh, where turbines are in use. The average wind speed at Great Blue Hill dropped more than 10 percent over the last 30 years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. The Massachusetts chapter of the National Federation of Independent Businesses is denouncing the pending increase in the state's minimum wage. The January 1st change will boost the minimum wage in Massachusetts to $15 an hour. It's the last of a series of incremental increases approved by the state legislature. In a statement released today, the Business Federation is calling on the state legislature to give small businesses time to adjust before considering future hikes to the minimum wage. It's 34 degrees in Boston, clear skies tonight lows in the mid-20s, mostly cloudy tomorrow, a high around 40 degrees. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Sarah McCammon. For more than a decade, Russian President Vladimir Putin has held court in an annual press conference near the end of the year. But not this year. The Kremlin canceled those plans in what many saw as Putin trying to avoid inconvenient questions about the war in Ukraine and what many observers think has shaped up to be a bad year for the Russian leader, his country and its economy. Joining us from Moscow is NPR's Charles Maines. Hi, Charles. Hi there. So let's start with this idea that along with the mere fact of the devastation caused by Russia's war against Ukraine, 
it's just been a bad year politically and strategically for Vladimir Putin. Why? Well, just think where things started. You know, in the first days after Putin announced he was sending Russian troops into Ukraine, he was supremely confident. Here's a speech on February 25th in which he called on the Ukrainian army to flip sides. Take power into your own hands, Putin told them. Don't sacrifice the lives of your families and friends to defend what he called drug addicts and Nazis in Kiev who had taken the country hostage. You know, and on the one hand, Putin continues to project a sense of confidence in his military. Everything is going according to plan has really become his go-to response to any questions about Ukraine. And yet these initial assurances of an overwhelming victory are clearly now a harder sell. All you have to do is look at the calendar. Right. So we're 10 months in and Ukraine's army not only did not surrender, they've reclaimed much of the territory that was seized by Russia. So what does the military picture look like from where you sit in Moscow? Well, not great. Uh, Russian forces obviously failed to take the capital, Kiev, also Ukraine's second city, Kharkiv. They've suffered symbolic losses like the sinking of the Moskva flagship cruiser in April in the Black Sea. Russia was also forced to withdraw on Ukraine's north and south, including parts of these four Ukrainian territories uh, Russia illegally annexed following sham referendums. Now, the Kremlin has always explained away these setbacks. You know, the Moskva sank due to a fire on board, uh, not a missile strike, as most believe. Uh, These troop withdrawals are tactical or temporary. And of course, Russia has reverted to this winter tactic of a barrage of missile strikes on critical infrastructure to try and freeze Ukraine into submission. But bottom line is 10 months of fighting and militarily, Russia doesn't have a lot to show for it. In retaliation for Russia's invasion, the West has launched wave after wave of sanctions on Russia, of course. What's been the impact on the Russian economy? Well, you know, sanctions against an economy the size of Russia's were really unprecedented. No one really knew how it would affect Russia or the rest of the global economy. So this is actually tape at a Moscow bank as people, including me, tried to get money out after the local currency, the ruble, tanked in March. Uh, President Biden at the time famously said sanctions had reduced the ruble to rubble. Uh, But you know what? The the ruble came back, uh, admittedly through price controls, and Russia seemed to weather the sanctions storm better than many expected, mostly thanks to its oil and gas exports, and Putin took a victory lap. The economic blitzkrieg against Russia has failed, said Putin in this speech in June, as he claimed sanctions had done more harm to those who issued them in the West than to Russia. Now, now just a quick fact check. It's true Europe in particular has struggled with high energy prices as Russia has turned off the, the tap on most gas exports to the EU. But, you know, as we sit here in December, Russia's economy ultimately shrunk by two and a half percent this year, uh, far from the collapse many were predicting, but also not exactly something to celebrate. But I think the question is, for how long? I mean, can the Russian economy continue to weather this for the long term? Yeah, well, that's just it. You know, the fundamental problems from sanctions keep intensifying. Uh, Western penalties on Russian oil and gas are starting to take hold. The ruble is again sliding. Uh, meanwhile, Russian companies can't get imported Western parts, and that's put a stranglehold on key industries says Natalia Zubarevich, a leading specialist on Russia's regional economy. Russia is a country heavily tied to globalization, she notes. And the more complex the manufacturing in question, the more heavily it relies on imported parts. So Zubarevich warns soon whole sectors of the economy could go dark for the simplest of reasons. Uh, Russia simply can't produce the finished product. And much of the country's labor force has left. Hundreds of thousands of Russians have fled the country since the start of the war. 
How has that affected things, though? Well, there have been several waves of Russians, uh, young men in particular leaving the country, first in February with the outbreak of the conflict, uh, then again in September when Putin called up an additional 300,000 troops in a public mobilization drive. And with that exodus, Russia really lost a generation of young and talented people. It's it's no accident that some countries that have absorbed these people, uh, places like Armenia, Georgia, they're seeing their economies grow even as there's occasionally uneasy attitudes uh, towards the Russian presence. Charles, how popular is the war with ordinary Russians? I mean, do we have a good sense of that? Well, there's a lot of debate here on that front. Uh, government polls show some 70 or 80 percent of the population support Putin's moves. But skeptics question the legitimacy of those numbers. You know, people like Alexei Minailo, he's an opposition politician who says these opinion polls are weaponized uh, to create what he calls illusions of majorities. They see uh, polls, they say, oh, that's 80 percent uh, are for the war. Uh, all right. Uh, so th- then the question, uh, do you believe Putin's propaganda? But if the Russian people, by and large, were really against this war, wouldn't they let it be known? I mean, Russian soldiers are also dying. Many Russian families have close ties to Ukrainians. Yeah, it's true, although I don't think we can discount the role of fear. Draconian laws passed after February have ultimately banned any public discussion of the leadership or the military. Uh, We've seen nearly 20,000 arrests of Russians who protested the government's actions, with some facing years in prison. Also, the media. Nearly every independent Russian media outlet closed or fled abroad after the government criminalized reporting on the war. So state propaganda and the conspiracies they push really dominate the mediascape now. So, Charles, you've painted this very grim picture here of a leader and in many ways a country that's angry and struggling. So what happens next? Where do things go from here? You know, well, oddly enough, both the Kremlin and its critics agree that 2023 is shaping up to be a defining year. Uh, President Putin talks about a realignment of the world order as Russia is now engaged in this existential battle with the West. And Putin's critics, for very different reasons, agree. They say Putin has so badly miscalculated in Ukraine that we're witnessing the beginning of the end of the Putin era. Uh, But that's something people have said for years. And whatever happens, uh, I think a lot of Russians know the state has tools in place to crush dissent. So conversations are are moving to private spaces, you know, like in Soviet times, it's in the kitchen uh, around the table where that fundamental question, where is Russia headed, is now most hotly debated. NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Thanks so much, Charles. Thank you. After nearly a week of airlines canceling thousands of flights a day, President Biden says his administration will hold carriers accountable. The Department of Transportation singled out Southwest, calling its high rate of delays and cancellations unacceptable. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports on what went wrong. When I reached Skyler Lenz in New York City, his family had spent four days trying to get back home to Denver after their Southwest flight was canceled. Now he just rented a car for the 26-hour drive. There's a place about uh, halfway through in Illinois, 13 hours from here and 13 hours from Denver. So our goal is to take a quick breather at the hotel and then pick it up again so we can be there Thursday night. He says his six and seven-year-olds are struggling, but it's not like he had a choice. We looked at um, taking a train from um, New York to Denver, but those were booked. A Greyhound was booked. Um, We've looked just about everything, other surrounding airports. Last-minute flights would have been $11,000 to $12,000 for the four of them. Southwest has canceled more than 60% of its flights over the busy Christmas week, far more than other airlines. 
Frustrated family members tell NPR they've had elderly relatives or those with disabilities stuck alone in airports. Others say they're out thousands of dollars in hotel fees and other non-refundables. And Southwest is still rebooking days out. Taylor McLean's flight from Chicago back home to Salt Lake City isn't until Thursday. Three, four days of vacation time. That'll go to waste just because they can't get me on a plane. And then four full days at least of paying for the dog to, to stay in the kennel still. Like many, McLean was most upset at shoddy customer service, starting with his flight to Chicago. While I finally got on a plane to leave at 9 p.m., I was still getting text messages saying, hey, your flight is now at 6 p.m., like three, four hours late. All this from an airline that's been beloved and known for excellent customer service. My colleague Scott Newman asked analysts what went wrong, and they said it's about much more than last week's devastating winter storm. In short, everything possible has gone wrong for Southwest, including, you know, some problems of their own making. Kyle Potter edits the website Thrifty Traveler. He says all airlines still face staffing problems made worse by the storm and by COVID and other respiratory illnesses. But he says Southwest's technology is in bad need of updating. Helene Becker agrees she's an airlines analyst with Cowan & Company. It's not only the customer facing systems, it's their crew scheduling and so on. And Southwest just has, has always been a laggard when it's come to technology. She and others also point to Southwest's lack of large hubs where it's easier to bring in backup staffing. Instead, pilots may not live where they fly out of and may fly to four, five or six destinations a day. So backfilling that can be a nightmare. In a statement, Southwest said it recognizes it's fallen short and our heartfelt apologies for this are just beginning. Industry analyst Potter says that's a start, but only. He says time and again, one airline or another has failed this way, but only customers have paid the price. That lack of accountability gives airlines across the country you know, free reign to keep running these razor-thin margins where mass delays and cancellations is just a storm or a mechanics strike or an IT software issue away. He hopes the massive number of travelers upended this time will lead to an industry-wide reckoning. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 418. And coming up on All Things Considered, pop culture could hinder the public's understanding of the growing dangers of wildfires under climate change. In business news, employees of the Cambridge-based trade publication Want to Unionize Reviewed is a product review publication owned by media giant Gannett. The Boston Business Journal reports the move towards a union involves about 60 of Reviewed's 100 employees. The workers say Gannett has refused to voluntarily recognize the union's formation. On Wall Street, the Dow closed up 37 points today at 33,241. The Nasdaq finished the day down 144 points at 10,353. The S&P 500 closed down 15 points at 3829. This is WBUR. 
I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Stay informed about a wide range of developments in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app whenever, wherever. It is 34 degrees in Boston with mostly clear skies tonight. Overnight lows dropping to the low 20s. A mostly cloudy Wednesday, a high tomorrow around 40 degrees. Thursday should be mostly sunny with highs in the mid 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Noom, providing an online evaluation and the tools to help people lead healthier lives through behavior change. More information at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Sarah McCammon. The FBI recently released their annual statistics on hate crimes across the country, but researchers say the data is flawed and that could undermine efforts to tackle hate crimes. NPR's Sergio Olmos has been digging into these stats and he joins us now. Hi, Sergio. Hey, Sarah. So what does this latest FBI report say about hate crimes in America, first of all? The FBI hate crime statistics reported that last year there were 7,262 hate crimes across the country. That's a slight decrease from the year before, but researchers say that those numbers may paint an incomplete picture. Law enforcement agencies volunteer to participate. They're not required to send in in their data to the FBI. There's 18,000 agencies across the country, and last year only about two-thirds of those agencies sent in any data. And you might imagine that some of those agencies are small police departments or sheriffs in rural towns, you know, stubbornly refusing to send in their stats, except that that's not the case. The largest cities in America, New York, L.A., Chicago, didn't contribute any data. And is this the only way that the government tracks hate crimes? There's other ways. That's the interesting part. I talked to Evan Holder at the University of Florida, who published a study looking at 18 years of the FBI's hate crime statistics He compared it to a different set of data collected by the Bureau of Justice Statistics, widely seen as a more reliable indicator of hate crime stats. So instead of a police officer taking a report, it's researchers asking people directly about their experience to crime, and people tend to open up more. Here's how Even Holder described it. What that database tells us is that, you know, there's 200 to 300,000 hate crime incidents in a given year. And the UCR FBI data records less than 10,000 of them. And Holder says that even if you look at that data, Last year, 80 percent of the 15,000 agencies that participated reported zero hate crime incidents. Zero hate crimes. I mean, is that is that reliable? Is that even possible? There's a mix of reasons why that happens. Some victims may not see themselves as a victim of a hate crime, and some police departments may record, for example, an assault without labeling it a hate crime. And that may be because it's a higher burden of proof uh, to prove the motivation behind a crime. I talked to Jacob Kaplan, who's a professional specialist at the the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. Uh, Let's listen to how he described it. There needs to be evidence of bias that plays at least a small part in the crime. And then the police need to have actual evidence, not just like, I think I was a victim of a hate crime. They need some kind of evidence that suggests that bias was a motivating factor. So even among police departments that are making a sincere effort to track hate crimes in their district, it's still a challenge. 
So, Sergio, what could this incomplete data you're describing mean in terms of trying to police hate crimes in the future? So police and community relationships are already stressed, and researchers say that not taking identity-based crimes seriously contributes to a vicious circle where victims of hate may be less likely to turn to the police to solve their problems, and police record less of those, and so on, undermining the overall legitimacy of police as, as an institution, especially in marginalized communities. The Justice Department themselves acknowledge how difficult it is to draw any conclusions from this data set because of the inconsistent ways cities are reporting hate crimes year by year. And even if all cities that participated reported their data, uh, among law enforcement, there's just not a universal agreement on what constitutes a hate crime. For example, a mass shooting last year in Atlanta at spa and massage parlors that left eight people dead, including six people who were Asian, were not counted as a hate crime in these stats. Uh, So these flawed numbers could mask a very real problem at a time of rising domestic extremism. NPO's Sergio Olmos, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. TV shows and movies about wildfires like the new CBS drama Fire Country are hugely popular. All right, guys, this is a real baptism by fire. By the end of the night, I'm going to know what kind of a man you are. Not everyone is a fan of these offerings, including many firefighters. That's because the entertainment industry doesn't always get it right when it comes to fighting wildfires in a time of accelerated climate change, as NPR's Chloe Veltman reports. Movies and TV shows about wildfires haven't changed much since they first blazed across our screens in the middle of the last century. It was clearly a job for the smoke jumpers. Melodramatic scenes of heroic, cleft-chinned firefighters charging fearlessly at enemy fires were a thing back in the 1950s in movies like Red Skies of Montana. A half dozen of these hard-hitting, specially trained firefighters dropped from the air a few hours from now would be worth a thousand men later on. And the over-romanticised view of wildfires is still very much a thing today. Megan Bolton is a firefighter in Eugene, Oregon. She says it's high time Hollywood let go of these exaggerated, oversimplified and often inaccurate clichés. Its aim is to entertain more than it is to inform. Instead, Bolton says, Hollywood should share messages about things like the usefulness of controlled burns to clear out overgrown brush, the public's role in wildfire prevention, and how climate change is turning wildlands across the world into tinderboxes. Introducing the complexity of the conversation that's actually happening in fire and climate change and fuels management would be a huge help. The problem is watching fire prevention and control methods like a homeowner raking leaves off their lawn or a firefighter digging a ditch doesn't exactly make for scintillating screen time. Where's the action? Where's the drama? Arizona State University historian Steve Pine studies the portrayal of wildfires in mass entertainment. It's very easy to tell the disaster and war story. It's much harder to tell the story of preventative stuff. Pine says despite the dramaturgical challenges, the entertainment industry has a responsibility to get the messaging right because of its enormous reach. I mean, most people are not reading policy statements. They're not reading the Journal of Ecology. They will get it in popular forms. 
This thing's gonna rip right into town. We'll make our stand. Right here. Water drop! God, I love this job. The new CBS series, Fire Country, about a group of prisoners turned volunteer firefighters in Northern California, is aflame with the usual pyrotechnics and melodrama. The show has been publicly criticised by firefighters. Fire Country executive producer Tony Phelan says he understands the pushback. But we're not making a documentary, and so there are certain compromises that we make for dramatic purposes. Yet Fire Country does offer a spark of hope in terms of the work Hollywood needs to do to integrate topics like fire prevention and climate change into storylines. You know, as I was driving over here, I was thinking, sometimes a bunch of fire citations can be just that. And uh, This moment from episode well, seven involves a local resident trying unsuccessfully to get problem. out of paying a fine for not clearing the wood around his property. Not very sexy, but executive producer Tony Phelan says scenes like this one matter. We certainly have a responsibility to tell people about what it means to have development encroaching into these woodland areas. And in order to many times save property, we are putting people's lives at risk. He says audiences can expect to see more climate change related content on Fire Country as the season continues. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR during the holiday stretch. The news is here, along with stories, conversation, and reflections as we wrap up 2022. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 429 and ahead on All Things Considered. You'll get the latest on the Republican congressman-elect George Santos of New York. He has now acknowledged deceiving voters about much of his life story. It's 34 degrees in Boston, lows overnight dropping to the low 20s. A mostly cloudy Wednesday, tomorrow's high around 40 degrees. Thursday should be mostly sunny with temperatures in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at BSO.org. Dr. Linda Vidon. Vice President of Clinical Management for Delta Dental of Massachusetts, a WBUR underwriter. We're pleased to underwrite WBUR as an effective way to increase awareness of the importance of oral health. Your oral health is a key predictor of overall health with direct links to diabetes, heart disease, mental health, and more. We believe that you can express your health through better oral health. For more information, visit expressyourhealthma.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The snow keeps falling in Buffalo, New York, where roughly 50 inches have fallen since the weekend. 28 people are known dead as the city continues to dig out from the crippling historic storm. Today, travel resumes on major highways subject to local advisories. The Department of Transportation is investigating massive flight cancellations by Southwest Airlines over the holiday travel period. Traveler Beanish Salim can't get out of Phoenix. The flight from Phoenix got delayed by seven hours, then they canceled my flight from Phoenix to Houston, so I'm here stuck at the airport. They were supposed to get my luggage back. I've been looking since last night. Luggage is nowhere to be found and uh, just stuck here. 
That sound courtesy of ABC 15 Arizona. Of the close to 3,000 U.S. flight cancellations, early today around 2,500 were called off by Southwest, according to the tracking website FlightAware. A 16-year prison sentence for a man convicted in a plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan. Michigan Radio's Steve Carmody reports. U.S. District Judge Robert Yonker said Adam Fox was a leader in the kidnapping plot, describing Fox as the one, quote, keeping fuel on the fire. The plot fizzled when state and federal law enforcement agents arrested more than a dozen people in 2020. But despite Fox's leadership role, Yonker decided a life sentence was too much in this case. In addition to 16 years in prison, Fox will face five years of supervised release. Assistant U.S. Attorney Nils Kessler calls the case a canary in the coal mine, citing, among other things, the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Kessler suggests Fox may emerge from prison more radicalized and remain a danger to the public. For NPR News, I'm Steve Carmody in Flint, Michigan. The U.S. Supreme Court has decided in a 5-4 to four ruling to grant a GOP request to prevent the winding down of the Title 42 immigration policy. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Incoming Bristol County Sheriff Paul Hero says he does not plan to make sweeping changes when he begins the job in January. Hero met with longtime Sheriff Thomas Hodgson at the Bristol County Jail during a transition meeting today. Hero says a primary focus will involve keeping people safe and reducing inmate recidivism. There's things we can do internally within the jail, and then there's once somebody's released, we don't have any more custody over them, but we can set them up with uh, post-release planning, like discharge planning, housing, health care, and a job. Hero narrowly defeated Hodgson in November. Hodgson held the position for 25 years. The North Atlantic right whale population continues to decline and should remain on the endangered species list. That's according to the latest five-year review by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The new data is part of regular reporting required for animals protected under the Endangered Species Act. The federal government estimates there are just over 330 of the marine mammals left in the world Federal scientists also say that right whale numbers are not improving under a previous plan issued to guide the species' recovery. There is still strong demand for tech talent in Massachusetts, despite recent layoffs across the industry. But high interest rates and inflation mean tech companies are tightening their spending. WBUR's Yasmin Emmer has more. There were more than 33,000 unique job postings in the state's tech sector in November. That's according to the latest data from labor market researcher Lightcast, which says there are more open tech jobs than available workers. But Scott Rankin at accounting firm KPMG says he expects the market to slow down next year. We will see more and more layoffs in tech. We'll see more layoffs in other industries as well. And that will reverberate its way through the economy in terms of other things. So more pessimistic views of what the economy is going to look like into calendar year 23. According to the Massachusetts High Technology Council, tech accounts for almost 9% of the state's workforce. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmeen Ammer. The Massachusetts State Lottery will introduce a $50 lottery ticket for the first time next year. The state will begin sales of the billion-dollar extravaganza scratch ticket in early February. Officials with Mass Lottery say they expect sales of the new ticket to exceed $1.5 billion. 
In sports tonight, the Bruins face the Senators in Ottawa and at the Garden. The Celtics host the Rockets. It is 34 degrees in Boston with lows in the low 20s overnight. A mostly cloudy Wednesday, a high tomorrow around 40 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the George Gund Foundation, working to make Cleveland and Northeast Ohio more globally competitive, livable, sustainable, and just. More information available at gundfdn.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Sarah McCammon. The right of parents to raise children as they see fit, that's one of our most fundamental rights. So for courts to end a parent's rights to their child, to separate them forever, there has to be a serious reason, like severe abuse, neglect, abandonment. But NPR investigative correspondent Joseph Shapiro reviewed the laws in every state, and he found one reason that leads to troubling decisions, which hurt families and children. We found laws in at least 12 states that say it's okay to take kids away from their mothers and fathers forever if the parent didn't pay a little-known debt to government. That debt's become controversial. It's the bill that many parents get when their children go into foster care to reimburse government for some of the cost of that care. In most states, it's rare that parents lose their children because they failed to pay. But in North Carolina, an NPR review of appeals court decisions over the last two years found failure to pay comes up a lot, which seems to contradict best practice and the latest law in child welfare that the number one priority should be keeping those parents and their children together. We went to the tiny rural town of Beargrass, North Carolina, population 93, where families show up at the high school football game on a Friday night. Get the ball! Get the ball! In North Carolina, the failure to pay some of the cost of foster care came up in 30% of cases where courts considered taking children from parents. Most of the time, it was included with more serious charges, like abuse or abandonment, when there seemed to be good reason to take children. But in a dozen cases, it was the only reason, often when the argument to take children away wasn't so clear at all. We found stories across North Carolina. One woman, the victim of domestic violence, reported her abusive partner to police. Her kids went into foster care. She lost her children for failure to pay, even though she speaks limited English and says no one told her. One man told us how he was penalized because when he was in prison, he failed to put aside some of the pennies an hour he made from a prison job. A lawyer told us of a girl who was 15 years old when she got pregnant. Later, her daughter was taken because she didn't pay the foster care bill, even though both she and her child were in foster care themselves. And just a few miles from that football field, at the end of a dirt road in a well-kept trailer home, we met Brandon Cunningham and his wife, Sylvia. Hey, honey. The Cunninghams admit they were, for a while, pretty irresponsible parents. This is a story about how they turned their lives around because they wanted their kids back. 
and the confusing and unforgiving child welfare system that kept their family apart. I was always blowing money. I'd come home on Fridays, paycheck gone. You know, wake up broke Saturday. You know, we were so bad in the drugs then and we weren't working and doing anything good with our lives. It's a familiar story. Brandon hurt his back hauling buckets at the phosphate mine. Sylvia got injured lifting boxes at the drugstore. A doctor prescribed pain pills. They fell into addiction. We were at the worst point of our lives. They took the kids. We went straight to prison. I did nine months. He did almost six. Their children were in foster care for about two years before the Cunninghams got serious about changing their lives. And this matters because it's important for kids to have a permanent place to live. When they've been in foster care for 15 months of the previous 22 months, federal law tells child welfare agencies to, in most cases, move to get them adopted. The Cunninghams were up against that time limit. A judge laid out a long series of steps they needed to take to get back their kids. They followed through with parenting classes, therapy. They got jobs, multiple jobs. They showed up for visits with their kids. They got sober and submitted to frequent drug testing. Hair follicle after hair follicle after hair follicle after hair follicle drug test. Eventually, the court determined that, yes, Brandon and Sylvia Cunningham had shown they could be safe parents, good enough to get their kids back. But here's where things started to get strange. The court returned three of their children, but not the fourth. I don't understand how we get three of our kids back and that one child is just gone. One boy, who was three then and is now seven, stayed in foster care. Then he was made eligible for adoption. Sometimes a child with a significant disability will stay to get services, but that wasn't the case here. It's crazy. I don't understand it. No it's one understands. Nobody in this county, everybody who knows our story, I can show people the documents and they read it and they're dumbfounded by it. Here's another thing that's hard to figure out. The reason the state Supreme Court used. It wasn't in the end whether the Cunninghams had stayed sober or acted quickly enough to become safe parents. It was because they'd failed to pay a debt. They failed to reimburse the state for part of the cost of their child's foster care. Across the country, impoverished parents get sent a bill when their children go into foster care. It's a little-known practice. An NPR investigation last year showed it's a policy that leads to bad outcomes. Because in the vast majority of cases, kids go into foster care not because they've been abused, but for neglect. And neglect is often an issue of poverty. Parents are homeless or can't buy food. They're addicted. To get their kids back, parents need to stabilize their lives. And that takes money to rent a big enough apartment or buy a car to get to a job. The bill to reimburse the cost of foster care is often a big one, sometimes hundreds of dollars a month. We know that when families have additional bill, children stay in foster care longer, which is not what we want. That's Asia Schomburg, who is the Biden administration official in charge of foster care policy and funding. The goal is to increase the opportunity for economic stability and mobility and not adding challenges. And that's Tangela Gray, the top federal official for child support enforcement. A few months ago, after NPR's reporting, Schomburg and Gray put out new guidance and recommended to states that they stop charging and collecting money from poor families when their kids go into foster care. North Carolina's Department of Health and Human Services told us it was moving to comply with the new direction from the federal government. Officials in Martin County, where the Cunninghams live, did not respond to our requests.
I told the two federal officials about several families I'd met in North Carolina. I don't know the specifics of the Cunningham's case. That's Schomburg from the Federal Children's Bureau. But just going back right to the whole purpose of this guidance and the importance of reuniting children with their parents and understanding, right, the devastation that the child support bill can cause. Child support is a term for that bill to make parents pay for the cost of foster care. The practice of charging parents, and only poor parents, is a leftover from another time, from a federal law still on the books from nearly 40 years ago, when Washington wanted people who got welfare to share responsibility and pay some of the cost of that assistance. Last year, Every state returned money to the feds, almost $96 million collected from parents. But now reuniting children with their parents is considered the best practice. And in 2018, Congress passed a law to make that the top priority. Which raises the question, if the federal government is now telling states to quit sending a bill for foster care, then why do parents lose their children when they don't pay? How can you say this is right? Attorney Benjamin Cole represents Brandon Cunningham and other parents. Your child is never coming home because you failed to give the government money, even though the government never asked you to pay a dime. That's another hard-to-explain thing about these cases in North Carolina. I can't tell you how much the Cunninghams owed for their son's foster care because county officials never gave them a bill, never told them to pay. In Brandon's case... It was clear and undisputed. The government never even once mentioned child support, never asked for a dime. Without being told to pay or how to pay or how much to pay, the Cunninghams say they had no way to pay. The Cunninghams appealed the decision to take their son and put him up for adoption. Last year, North Carolina's state Supreme Court issued its ruling. It went against the Cunninghams. The court said, it doesn't matter whether the Cunninghams were told to pay or not, because parents should know they have an obligation to pay for the care of their children. Sydney Batch is a member of the North Carolina State Senate. And so we're telling parents and children that we're going to sever a relationship and a bond permanently because someone didn't have enough money to pay child support. That is absolutely wrong. And I think it's immoral. Batch is also a Raleigh family law attorney. She sees clients, ones who live from paycheck to paycheck, struggle. Do they pay that bill for their child's foster care or on better stable housing? Which is oftentimes and almost always a requirement to regain custody of your children. Then they end up paying child support, but they don't have a house for their children to come back to. Batch says the law already has plenty of other grounds for, if necessary, ending a parent's rights to their child because there's horrible abuse or the parents didn't get sober or didn't follow the steps laid out by a judge to get their child back. Batch says it's time for her colleagues in the state legislature to change the law that uses failure to pay for foster care as a reason. It's a tax on the poor and it is a permanent irrevocable penalty because you happen to be poor in North Carolina and are not able to pay your bills so therefore you lose custody of your children. All right. A truck. That's a truck. What is that? Pete. Today, Brandon and Sylvia Cunningham live in that trailer with their three children who came home, two older teens and a two-year-old. Is that a cow? What does a cow do? It's a Saturday morning. Brandon makes good money now. He works at a company that cuts lumber for fence posts. He builds decks on the side. 
he stays at home on the weekends when Silvio works two jobs at restaurants. But they know how people saw them and how some still see them. Yeah, putting us down, talk to us like we were trash. As long as we had been addicts in our history, we would never be productive citizens. We would never stay sober. Even if we did it for a while, we would relapse and be drug addicts again. And they're wrong. They're wrong. Once you get clean and you see how great life can be, you don't ever want to go back to that and be that person again. You never wanted to be that person to start with. The Cunninghams try to make sense of what happened to their family. Their house is filled with pictures of their kids and many of the son who was gone. This trailer echoes with memories of bad times. Now they save their money and watch it grow in a brokerage account. They've got their eyes on a new house, a brick rambler not far away. Joseph Shapiro, NPR News. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 448, and ahead on All Things Considered, you'll hear from the president of the Southwest Flight Attendants Union. Also, you'll meet the director of the movie, Leonora Will Never Die. That and much more ahead on All Things Considered. Stay informed about a wide range of developments in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app whenever wherever. It's 34 degrees in Boston, with lows dropping to the low 20s tonight. Tomorrow, a mostly cloudy Wednesday and a high around 40 degrees. Thursday should be mostly sunny with temperatures in the mid 40s. And looking ahead to Friday, mostly sunny and highs reaching the upper 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season on stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about giving a modest contribution that creates journalism that helps thinking people think harder. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Now is the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of stock. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Republican Congressman-elect George Santos from New York now admits he misled voters about big parts of his life before winning a seat on Long Island last month. Still, Santos says he'll take office next month, part of the new razor-thin GOP majority in the House. NPR's Brian Mann has more. During the campaign, George Santos described graduating from Baruch College, said he worked for Goldman Sachs, and claimed to own valuable real estate properties. Santos hasn't responded to NPR's repeated requests for an interview, but talking to conservative media outlets, he now acknowledges much of that story is untrue. Here he is speaking with WABC Radio. A lot of people overstate in their resumes or twist a little bit or engrandate themselves. I'm not saying I'm not guilty of that. 
But a growing number of critics, including some in the Republican Party, say Santos did more than embellish. They say he outright lied when he claimed to be, quote, a proud Jewish American and said repeatedly that members of his family escaped the Holocaust. Megan Smoleniak is a forensic genealogist who examined Santos' family records. His story about having you know, Holocaust heritage and Ukrainian heritage, I just don't see evidence, any evidence to support it anywhere in his family tree. In a statement today, the Republican Jewish coalition said Santos, quote, deceived us and misrepresented his heritage. But legal experts say none of this will prevent Santos from being sworn in next month. He is constitutionally entitled to his seat. Richard Perfault, an expert on campaign law at Columbia University, says the Constitution doesn't disqualify candidates for lying. Speaking to WABC Radio, Santos blamed growing questions about his past on the liberal media. I'm not a fraud. I'm not a, a criminal who defrauded the entire country and made up this fictional character and ran for Congress. Santos' victory on Long Island helped Republicans win a fragile majority in the House. Santos has also pledged to support Kevin McCarthy, who's still scrambling to rally enough GOP votes to serve as House Speaker. Brian Mann, NPR News. Retired screenwriter Leonor Reyes is smoking a cigarette in her garden when a television set comes falling out of the sky. She's knocked into a state that's somewhere between sleep and consciousness when she begins to revisit one of her half-written screenplays. This is the premise of the film Leonore Will Never Die. It's a genre-bending ode to pulpy Filipino action films from the 1970s and 80s. It mashes up over-the-top action scenes with melodramatic family dynamics and with hammy musical numbers with huge dance moves. The mastermind behind this film joins us now all the way from Manila, Martika Ramirez Escobar. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hello, Elsa. Thank you so much for having me. So this is your debut film. And just to explain to people, it's not linear at all. It's like this movie within a movie. There's also this blurry line between what's dream versus what's reality. But you know, throughout the film, there is one constant grounding force, and that is the main character, Leonor. Can you just describe her real quick? I think she's many people at once. She's the type of artist who's concerned about what will be left of her work when she's gone. I think she's also concerned about how to write the best version of her life. Well, why was it important to you to have an older woman like Leonor, someone who's partly based on your grandmother, to have someone like that be the star of an action movie? Imagining an action grandma is fun, but I think it's equally meaningful at the same time because the existential crisis is higher at that stage. And I see myself as a person wanting to make films for the rest of my life, but it's really difficult and expensive. And there are a lot of sacrifices involved. So I think Leonor is also my reimagining of a possible future and also me trying to face my fears in a joyful form. I think it's also because the action genre is very macho and I wanted to see a woman in it. How she solves the problems through communication. <laughs> Not just 
violence all around and killing all the people she thinks are bad. So it's just a different take on this genre that you know, people very much love, particularly in the Philippines where we had the multiple action star presidents, like literally action star presidents. Right. All men, mm-hmm. of course. Yeah. What was it like to shoot some of these scenes with actors who aren't normally performing in the action genre and some actors who maybe were never in a musical? Was that challenging? It's it's challenging. The entire process of making the film is challenging, but it's also fun. So like the stunt scenes, we had a stunt choreographer, but he's young also. And I think it's a reimagining of that era. That's why what appeared in the film looks familiar or looks similar to the 70s and 80s action films, but is really different. (laughs) And the priority was always to just have a good time. You know, underlying everything unfolding in this movie is the fact that Leonore is grieving the death of one of her sons. She's ignoring bills that she has to pay. She seems to be mourning her screenwriting career, perhaps feeling less relevant to the world. What do you think Leonore is ultimately searching for in this movie? Oh no, (laughs) big question. What is Leonore searching for? I think she just wants to find that connection to the world before leaving the world. Like what I mentioned, she wants to rewrite and revise her life in such a way that her regrets will be solved. She just wants to feel fulfilled somehow because we all want to write our lives well. We all want to fix our regrets somehow. And I think this film is a concretization of that. You are the first Filipina to win an award at Sundance. You won the special jury prize for Innovative Spirit. Your film is about to hit streaming platforms. It's gotten some positive early reception in the U.S. and in Canada. How surprised are you to see a film that's based on Filipino cinema do so well abroad? Um, I'm still surprised until right now. I'm surprised we even have a distributor. Even getting into Sundance was not even my dream, because it sounded too impossible. And after a year of rejections, I was just like, well, why don't we try submitting? Surprisingly, when we got in, I'm like, really? This is so weird. And I (laughs) often describe it as surreal because we are the formula of unlikeliness. It's a small film. It's a first film. And it's a strange film. So to to actually be in Sundance is already for us a dream and achievement mm-hmm. and also I don't know a miracle for me. Martika Ramirez Escobar, director and screenwriter for the movie Leonore Will Never Die. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you, Elsa. Leonore Will Never Die is streaming on multiple platforms starting today. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. 
and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 34 degrees in Boston. As all things considered continues at 5 o'clock, you'll hear about the Supreme Court ruling that the Title 42 immigration policy will remain in effect, and you'll consider what that means for many migrants. Lows tonight in Boston dropping to the low 20s, a mostly cloudy Wednesday. Tomorrow's high around 40 degrees. And then Thursday, you can expect mostly sunny skies and temperatures in the mid-40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help put joy on every plate this holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org slash WBUR. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Southwest Airlines employees say outdated technology is partially to blame for the company's holiday meltdown. Now we're having to cancel flights just to get the operation back in sync. Basically, we're like a row of dominoes, and once one goes down, it all follows. It's Tuesday, December 27th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Josie Guarino, in for Lisa Mullins. Taiwan is living under the vague threat of an invasion by China, but its military is not ready for such a fight. We need anti-ship missiles. We need mobile air defense system. Also, for the first time since Colorado legalized recreational cannabis sales, revenue has been down for an entire year. And the author of Rest is Resistance discusses how to fight against the feeling that self-worth depends on productivity. It's 501 First This News. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The U.S. Supreme Court is keeping the pandemic-era border restrictions in place indefinitely. In a 5-4 to four ruling today, the high court granted a GOP request to prevent the winding down of the Title 42 immigration policy, agreeing to decide later this term whether the 19 states that oppose the policy should be allowed to intervene in defense of winding it down in the lower courts. Under Title 42, immigration authorities are able to quickly remove many of the migrants they encountered without giving them a chance to ask for asylum protection. Southwest Airlines passengers across the country are still stranded after widespread flight cancellations and delays. The major winter storm over the holiday weekend is largely to blame for airport disruptions. But as Tulawani Osibamawo from member station KERA reports, Southwest is still struggling to operate normally even where the snow and ice has been cleared. Dozens of passengers waited in line at Dallas Love Field Airport hoping to rebook their canceled flights. In a statement, Southwest said it would be flying only one-third of its scheduled flights over the next several days. Elena Taylor is from Buffalo, New York. She says she was on hold for hours with Southwest customer service trying to rebook her flight home with no luck. To at least know maybe when you're, you know, to get some updates and have to be and not have to travel here 
every day to change your flight. Like, there's no way their phone should be disconnected. The U.S. Department of Transportation says it will examine the airline's cancellations, delays, and customer service practices. I'm Toluwani Osibemowo in Dallas. Russia has delivered a long-awaited response to a Western-backed price cap on Russian oil exports. That cap was imposed as punishment for the Kremlin's actions in Ukraine. For Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines has more. In a decree issued on the Kremlin's website, Russia said it would ban all sales of oil to countries participating in the price cap arrangement for an initial five months starting in February. The U.S. conceived pricing scheme, backed by the G7, EU, and Australia, attempts to cap trade in Russian crude at $60 a barrel. That's high enough to encourage continued global trade, but low enough, the U.S. and its allies hope, to cut into state revenues that fund Russia's military. Russia has criticized the effort as illegal and expressed confidence to confine new buyers of Russian crude, Ukraine has also been among the price cap's critics, saying it still allows Russia to profit too much from state petrol sales. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Wall Street in mixed territory by the closing bell. The Dow was up 37 points at 33,241. The Nasdaq was down 144. The S&P 500 down 15. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Josie Guarino in for Lisa Mullins. Provincetown officials continue to assess property damage after last week's storm battered parts of the Massachusetts coast. The high winds and tides hit commercial areas of the historic tourist town, causing mild to severe damage to up to two dozen homes and businesses. Dan Raviello is assistant town manager. Almost all of the damage is to private property or on private property, so You know, we're really just uh, encouraging property owners to get eyes on their property as soon as they can. You know, a lot of people might not be here in the winter or might have been away for the holiday weekend. Riviello says there were no reports of serious injury to any residents in the storm. An Ashland doctor appeared in a Washington, D.C. court today after allegedly punching a police officer during the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Jacqueline Sterer was ordered to surrender her passport and stay away from D.C. except to appear in court. She also has to avoid drugs and heavy drinking and complete a mental health treatment plan. This week, a small fringe festival has popped up in Boston Seaport. The series is based on bigger performance events like ones in Edinburgh and Providence. WBUR's Amelia Mason has more on how artists are trying to bring an edgy spirit to a normally sleepy week in Boston. When author Randy Ross noticed the assemblage art space would be empty the week after Christmas, he saw an opportunity, a chance to fill it with offbeat performances by local writers, playwrights, and actors. It's that that fringy flavor, what I'm talking about as far as uh, eclectic, um, edgy, experimental, it's stuff you're not going to find in a big theater. The lineup includes Ross's one-man show about a miserable trip he took around the world and another writer's look at Boston's historic red light district. The Fort Point Arts Community pop-up fringe runs through Thursday and has a suggested donation of $10. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. A heads up, if you're driving along Interstate 95 in Fall River, the Massachusetts Department of Transportation will be doing bridge work along that stretch of highway starting tomorrow night. The overnight work is scheduled from 8 p.m. until 5 o'clock the next morning through the morning of January 6th, except for the long New Year's weekend. It's 5.06. In sports tonight, the Bruins play the Senators in Ottawa. Puck drops at 7 tonight. And at the Garden, the Celtics host the Houston Rockets beginning at 7.30. In weather. 
weather. Starlit skies tonight, temperatures in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, some sun and clouds, a high of around 40. Right now, we have 34 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Ari Shapiro. When you combine one of the worst winter storms in recent memory with the busiest travel period of the year, you're going to have a lot of travel delays. But when you look in detail at who is flying again and who isn't, one airline stands out. Southwest accounts for almost 90% of all canceled flights in the U.S. today, according to the tracker Flight Aware. Southwest employees are also trying to make sense of the situation. And Lynn Montgomery is president of the Southwest Flight Attendants Union. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. In the close to 30 years that you've been a flight attendant, have you ever seen anything like this? No, this is just a complete debacle. It's so embarrassing and so disheartening. I mean, we've heard reports of flight attendants themselves having to sleep in airport terminals. What have you heard from your members? Oh, that's absolutely true. Our flight attendants have been without hotels. They have uh, had to spend the night, in best case scenario, on cots, which is horrible, in uh, flight attendant lounges. And in worst case scenarios, just, you know, alongside passengers. We also have had to wait on hold for unbelievable amounts of time for instructions from crew scheduling. Hmm. Flight attendants have sent us their screenshots of their holding times, and it has been anywhere from 3, 8, 12, and most egregious cases, 17 hours. You said this is embarrassing and disheartening. Let's try to pull back the curtain on what's going on, because yesterday Southwest canceled almost 3,000 flights. That is more than 10 times more than the next airline. So what made Southwest different from all the other airlines in this storm. This is basically the house of cards has fallen. This is something that TW Local 556 has told the company over the years, its pilots union has said the same thing, that we need to invest in our IT infrastructure, that the systems we have in place cannot handle the operation that we utilize today. And eventually we're gonna have a system failure so grave that something of this magnitude could happen. And today we have the situation where we don't even need to say the evidence anymore. It's all here that this has happened. You said it was an IT failure. Can you explain like what exactly it is that went wrong? What it is that Southwest does differently from the others? It's just about the systems not being able to handle the mass amount of cancellations and rescheduling that needs to occur. And the way that they have to notify their flight crews is a manual process. Most of the notifications required, you actually have to talk to a crew scheduler. If you have 1,200 flight cancellations and you need to talk to even half of those flight attendants, that becomes an incredibly taskful thing to do and you can't get it done in time. And that's Mm. why flight minutes have been on hold. Hmm. I've also been hearing about the difference between the hub and spokes model that many airlines use and Southwest's model, which is a little bit different. So like United has a hub in Chicago and Delta has a hub in Atlanta, but Southwest tends to go from point A to B to C to D rather than all returning to the central home base. Is that part of what made this so problematic for Southwest? So we do have a different system. We have point-to-point and almost a hybrid of hub and spoke a little bit with some mega stations throughout the system to facilitate things like nonstops. And when one of those 
systems fails, yes, it becomes difficult to recover. I think it has to do with um, proactively and preemptively canceling more in the eye of the storms. Um, you know, you'll see other airlines doing much more cancellations when storms are predicted, whereas Southwest has held on and really been hesitant to cancel, somewhat mm. understandably at times. However, if you can't get back up and running, obviously you're just making the situation much worse. Oh, so in maybe a counterintuitive way, canceling more flights ahead of time could lead you to not have to cancel quite as many flights after the storm hits. Absolutely, because now we're having to cancel flights just to get the operation back in sync. Basically, we're like a row of dominoes, and once one goes down, it all follows. So the management is trying to find a way to reset it. But that's a very difficult task, and which is why it's taking many days of cancellations to provide uh, recovery. Yeah. The U.S. Department of Transportation has called this unacceptable. Do you think there's a role for the government to play in fixing this problem short and long term? Yes, I do. I have an appointment today with Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg, and I'm very happy that he's been responsive and is willing to speak with me. So you've talked about IT, you've talked about routing. What about staffing? Because we heard uh, as we were coming out of the pandemic that air travel bounced back much more quickly than hiring. Was staffing part of the problem here? You know, that has been something that we have felt has not been an issue. It is not an issue today. There were some issues with staffing, you know, after and during the pandemic, but we're fully staffed. In fact, we hired almost 4,000 flight attendants this year alone. Mm. I know that you and your members are seeking a lot of answers right now, but is there anything you would like Southwest passengers to understand about this situation? Well, I would like them to know that Southwest Airlines flight attendants have a very uh, unique fondness for our customers. We really like to ensure that you have a great experience when you're traveling on Southwest Airlines. We're very sorry that we keep having to say we're sorry to you. And we just ask that you pack a lot of patience and remember that we're, we're kind of in this right there with you. And we, the leaders here at TW Local 556, we will hold Southwest Airlines executives accountable for the situation and make sure that they restore faith back into Southwest Airlines again. That's Lynn Montgomery, president of TWU Local 556, the union that represents flight attendants at Southwest Airlines. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Southwest Airlines did not offer a spokesperson for comment today, but issued a statement apologizing and acknowledging the disruptions were unacceptable, writing, We're working with safety at the forefront to urgently address wide-scale disruption by rebalancing the airline and repositioning crews in our fleet, ultimately to best serve all who plan to travel with us. Ukraine's utility workers are braving landmines and shelling as they race to repair energy and water infrastructure near the front line. But as NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from the southern city of Mykolaiv, the workers face a Sisyphean battle to restore service before the next Russian strike. When Ukrainian forces liberated territory in the south last month, they also freed a key source of drinking water. Timothy Prokopenko, a water utilities manager in the southern city of Mykolaiv, remembers driving to a pumping station that had been under Russian control. He reunited with his colleagues who had been trapped there during the occupation. When we saw our colleagues there, safe and sound, it was the happiest moment. They embraced and they wept. Then Prokopenko saw how badly Russian soldiers had damaged the pumping station. 
There were broken pipelines. They also stole a lot of equipment. We realized it would take a lot of time to repair in order to provide Mykolaiv with water. This pumping station had transported water from the Dnipro River to Mykolaiv until Russian forces took over the area in April. Since then, residents have filled jugs with filtered water from tanks trucked in by the Red Cross. Retired shipbuilding accountant Irina Suvorova drives to a Red Cross site twice a day to fill 20 jugs with this imported water. She drinks it and also uses it for cooking, showering and brushing her teeth. The water from the tap is way too salty. It's too much. We only use this water for rinsing. The tap water is salty because Mikolaev's Water Utilities Department has been forced to pull water from an estuary of the Black Sea. Suvorova says she was thrilled a few weeks ago when she heard the pumping station near the river was finally liberated. We were waiting for our drinking water to finally come back, but the Russians won't leave us alone. Russian missiles hit this pumping station just as workers were repairing it to bring it back online. Welder Oleksandr Lucha says the Ukrainian military escorted him and other workers to the site. They warned him that landmines were everywhere. Were you worried that a mine could explode the whole time you were walking there? At first, I wasn't that scared. I was told that a lot of people had been here before me, but I was more careful after the truck exploded. A colleague about 25 yards away had driven over a mine. The colleague survived. Horcha says he was rattled, but he continued working. He noticed that the Russian missiles had destroyed parts of the pipeline connected to the pumping station. The pipe joints were ripped off. The pipe segments were pierced and scattered around. Russian forces continue to target water and energy infrastructure throughout Ukraine, including Mykolaiv. Utility workers digging up pipes are a common sight in the city. Oleksandr Volk is fixing a pipe outside an apartment building. We already have problems with salty water corroding the metal pipes. And whenever there is an explosion, the impact cracks the pipes, even if it's not a direct hit. It's fallen to Deputy Mayor Vitaly Lukov to communicate to residents that water service will not be restored anytime soon. Someone has to be the optimist here. The national government plays that role, but someone also has to be the realist, and that's the local government. Back at the Red Cross site providing filtered water, Irina Suvorova says she will keep lugging jugs and jerry cans here until Russian forces finally leave Ukraine. We will survive, she says, and all we want is for the Russians to get lost. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Mikolaev. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino in Boston. The time is 5.18. Coming up on All Things Considered, more than two dozen people in Buffalo, New York, are dead after a massive winter storm. That story just ahead on All Things Considered. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 23rd. Semesteroff.com. In business news, lottery sales in Massachusetts last month were more than $40 million more than sales in November of 2021. The Massachusetts Lottery says Powerball sales propelled the spike with more than $58 million worth of Powerball tickets sold last month. National games with huge jackpots this year have nearly closed a revenue gap of more than $60 million as of September. On Wall Street, the Dow closed up 37 points at 33,241. The Nasdaq finished the day down 144 points at 10,353. And the S&P 500 closed down 15 points at 38.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Immerse yourself in a winter wonderland at Zoo Lights, Stone Zoo's sparkling annual holiday tradition. Advanced tickets required at stonezoo.org. Saturday is your last chance to make a tax-deductible gift to WBUR for 2022. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Remember, you can stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Noom, a personalized weight loss program designed to give people knowledge to set new goals and the tools to stick to them for good. Learn more at Noom. N-O-O-M dot com. From Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Ari Shapiro. At least 35 people are dead in western New York after a winter storm walloped the region with deep snow and bitter cold. Forecasters say things are getting better, but troubles remain. From member station WBFO in Buffalo, Dave Debo reports. The New York State Governor Kathy Hochul grew up outside Buffalo, seeing storms often. I'm a Buffalonian. And all of us think in historic and epic terms, but this one is for the ages. At its worst, beginning Friday, over 100,000 without power, four feet of snow in some spots, winds whipping up whiteouts, emergency crews basically giving up, admitting there were some calls that they just couldn't get to. And people hunkered down in their homes until, well, today, actually, when some roads were clear, according to Erie County Executive Mark Polencars. Well, downtown is actually okay Immediately out of downtown, it's bad. Driving bans have been lifted outside the city of Buffalo, but roads in the city are still a major challenge, especially for emergency personnel. In some cases, vehicles like bulldozers have followed ambulances until the snow drifts get too high, and then those vehicles with tracks instead of tires have taken EMTs on the last leg to people in distress. As roads clear today, most people are staying off them, except that one driver that polling cars saw in a Camaro. That's a great vehicle for the summer. It is not the vehicle to be driving in slippery, bad conditions 
in winter. Perhaps that driver was dreaming of the snowmelt. National Weather Service meteorologist Kirk Apfel says it is coming. We are looking at a warm-up. We're going to just get a little warmer every day going through the end of the week. And by uh, Friday through uh, New Year's Day, we'll have highs up in the lower 50s. But he does expect some minor flooding, wet basements this weekend. For NPR News, I'm Dave Debo in Buffalo. French Lebanese trumpet player Ibrahim Malouf is stepping out of his comfort zone. Am I just releasing album to release an album because this is how I make a living? Following the release of his Grammy-nominated album with Angelique Kijo, Malouf is back with a new body of work titled Capacity to Love, featuring some of the industry's best in pop and hip-hop music. Beto Arcos recently caught up with Malouf at his recording studio in Paris to discuss the philosophy behind his 15th album. Every time he works on a new album, trumpet player Ibrahim Malouf asks himself this question. Is he doing something new or is he repeating himself? My challenge every time, because I like composing a lot, I like, I love producing and composing, my challenge is every time to try to even surprise myself. That's life. You gotta taste a little bad with the good as you should. The album features a wide array of vocalists from across the pop music spectrum, from Sima Funk and Tank and the Bangas to hip-hop artists Eric the Architect and De La Soul. I love hip-hop culture. I love all American culture. You cannot be a re- European, for example, or even a Lebanese person and without having a big part of your culture that is American. Because you watch TV, you watch movies, you listen to pop music. So all this is an American influence and no, no one can deny that. Malouf invited some little-known artists and a few bigger names. Wine like ancient rivers crossing Grand like grandma's open hands The album title, Capacity to Love, came from singer Gregory Porter. After Malouf talked to Porter for 30 minutes about his ideas and philosophy behind the album... He looked at me and he said, Ibrahim, you're actually talking about our capacity to love. And then I was like, oh my God, he just said it in two words instead of half an hour talking. Malouf says this album is his first outside his comfort zone. A week later, I saw him in the type of space he's been familiar with for many years. It's a chilly evening at the auditorium of La Seine Musicale, a performing arts center on the southwest corner of Paris. Tonight is the concert and award ceremony of the Maurice André International Trumpet Competition, organized, produced, and emceed by Malouf. The renowned French classical trumpet player André was his father's mentor when he arrived in Paris as an immigrant from Lebanon. The trumpet competition had been dormant for 16 years, Malouf felt a responsibility to revive it. Ten years after the loss of Maurice André, uh, we need to bring it back because it's the name of Maurice André, it's uh, what he brought to me, to my father, to our family, and uh, I cannot forget him. (laughs) 
Malouf covered all the production costs of the competition and the concert, and the French Ministry of Culture stepped in to offer the award prizes to the top three winners. Clément Saunier is the solo principal trumpet player of the ensemble Intercontemporain at La Philharmonie of Paris. Saunier says Andrés' influence helped Malouf understand the power of his instrument and of being different, blending his father's legacy of Arab music into other sounds. Adding this to a classical and jazz and world music style, and uh, I think this image of finally... Everything is possible with uh, if I play the trumpet. It's not just playing in the last seat of the band. In the Grammy-nominated Queen of Sheba album, Malouf's trumpet is front and center along with Angelique Kijo's voice. The album is a seven-part suite connecting Africa to the Middle East. Kijo wrote songs in the Yoruba language inspired by riddles the Queen of Sheba posed to King Solomon. Malouf composed and arranged the music. Kijo says she chose riddles that are relevant in the world today, such as this one called Ahan, about the power of the word. We need to talk to one another and find common ground because it's our fate. We are made to live together. And if we lose the ability to talk to one another, then we start killing one another. Common ground is Malouf's main theme on his new album, Capacity to Love. His ideal world is explored in the video of the song El Mundo, featuring Brazilian singer Flavia Coelho and DJ Tony Romera. It's a world where there's no judgment. We don't judge people on the appearances or on the way they live. We just accept, and that doesn't threaten your identity. When you accept people uh, in your family, it doesn't mean that they are going to change you, or it doesn't, doesn't mean that you're threatened. It just means that we share values. Malouf says he doesn't expect an album to change the world, but he is hopeful. For NPR News, Ambeto Arcos. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. For at least five decades, police departments nationwide have trained and tried to do a better job of saving lives by talking hostage takers into letting their captives go. You have to keep focused on the mission, which is saving lives. Hear about the surprising podcast on the history of hostage negotiations tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Josie Guarino. In sports, the Bruins play the Senators in Ottawa tonight. Puck drops at 7. And at the Garden, the Celtics host the Houston Rockets at 7.30. 
In weather, starlit skies tonight, temperatures in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, some sun and clouds, high of around 40. Thursday, mostly sunny, highs in the mid-40s. Warming up for Friday, bright skies, upper 40s. Right now, we have 34 degrees in Boston. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The U.S. Supreme Court has decided in a 5-4 to four ruling to grant a GOP request to prevent the winding down of the pandemic-era Title 42 immigration policy, which allows authorities to quickly expel migrants. The restrictions were put in place as a public health order by former President Trump's administration in March 2020, when COVID-19 was just beginning to surge in the United States. President Biden says his administration will make sure airlines are held accountable for the flight delays and widespread cancellations of this holiday travel period. NPR's Tamara Keith has more. What started with a record-setting winter storm snowballed into an operational disaster for Southwest. Crews out of place, thousands of flights canceled, lost and abandoned luggage piling up at airports, and customers calling for help getting busy signals instead of answers. In a tweet, President Biden said his administration is working to ensure airlines are held accountable. The Department of Transportation said it is concerned by Southwest's unacceptable rate of cancellations and delays, and reported last of prompt customer service. In a statement, Southwest says it has let down its customers and employees and, quote, our heartfelt apologies for this are just beginning. Full disclosure, this reporter experienced all of these issues firsthand. Tamara Keith, NPR News. A boil water advisory is in effect for the long-troubled water system of Jackson, Mississippi, due to frozen pipes that are likely to have burst. Here's Mayor Shokwe Antar Lamumba. System pressures remain low, uh, slightly better than yesterday, but are still too low to supply water to all customers. The mayor says that crews are looking for the source of the leaky pipes. On Wall Street, the Dow gained 37, the Nasdaq off 144. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Josie Guarino in for Lisa Mullins. A bill that would ban the use of Native, Native American mascots by public schools in Massachusetts is set to be refiled in the new legislative session. Matawi Monroe is the co-leader of the United American Indians of New England and says the bill was not brought to a vote in the latest session. She says the use of the mascots stereotypes Native Americans. About 40 percent of people in this country seem to think that indigenous people are extinct, believe it or not. And things like the stereotypes that are used on these Native mascots help to perpetuate that idea that Native people only exist in the past. Monroe says the use of the Native American mascots is psychologically damaging to Native American youth. This will be the fourth time that the bill has been filed in the Massachusetts legislature. The wind at the summit of Great Blue Hill outside Boston seems to be getting slower. That's according to almost 130 years of data collected at the Blue Hill Meteorological Observatory. WBUR's Barbara Moran reports on what this mysterious slowdown might mean for wind energy. Nobody's sure why the wind is slowing down. It could be a local reason, like forests growing back, or it could be tied to global atmospheric shifts, like the wavering jet stream that we're seeing with climate change. Michael Yakino is chief scientist at the Blue Hills Observatory. So certainly it has implications for understanding climate change, but it can also have implications for generating wind power, for example, if this is going on at a larger scale in the places where uh, 
more turbines are in use. The average wind speed at Great Blue Hill dropped more than 10 percent over the last 30 years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Nominations are now being accepted for the 2023 John F. Kennedy Profile and Courage Award. The honor recognizes elected officials who have stood up for what was right, despite possible personal or political consequences. This year, there were five recipients, including Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky and U.S. Representative Liz Cheney. Former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney received the award in 2021. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Avangrid, a clean energy company committed to accelerating Massachusetts climate goals by investing in offshore wind and hydroelectric energy designed to power 2 million homes every day and help reduce carbon emissions by 7 million tons, believing that acting on climate change can't wait. In weather, we're looking at clear skies tonight, dropping down to the low 20s. Tomorrow, some sun and clouds, a high of around 40. Thursday, mostly sunny, highs in the mid-40s. Tomorrow's sunrise, it's at 713. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The Supreme Court says Title 42 will stay in place for now. That policy lets immigration authorities quickly remove migrants before they can ask for asylum or other protections. The Trump administration put it in place as a public health order. The Biden administration had planned to end it. But today the justices sided with Republican state officials who want to keep Title 42. The ACLU has been pushing to end the policy, and Lee Gallant is the group's lead attorney on the case. Welcome. Thanks for having me. This is not the final word. So what exactly did the Supreme Court do today? So the Supreme Court kept in, kept Title 42 in place, which was deeply disappointing, and then set the case on for argument on an expedited schedule in February. But they will not be looking at the merits of the legality of Title 42, only whether the 19 states that sought to intervene can can now intervene, whether the Court of Appeals was correct to deny their intervention. So the case will continue. I, I think there's no question at this point that Title 42 needs to end. There's no longer a public justification for so the you're public health justification. So you're saying the Supreme Court will decide whether these 19 states have standing, have a right to dispute it, not whether the policy itself uh, is is legitimate. Exactly. And so unfortunately, this is a delay and it's going to mean real harm on the ground. What the Court of Appeals called stomach churning evidence. Families with little children are literally being asked to walk the plank directly into the hands of cartels. So this delay will mean real harm on the ground, but we will continue fighting. Title 42 is a public health order. As you mentioned, it was tied to the pandemic. Legally speaking, does it matter whether the pandemic is raging, whether people are vaccinated? Does the public health scenario have any impact on the legal question at the heart of this? Well, it absolutely does, because what the CDC said is there's no longer a public health justification. And the statute on which they were relying 
allows them only to stop people at the border if there's a public health justification. It cannot be used as a border management tool. And it's now clear the states are transparently and, and quite frankly, hypocritically trying to use it as a border management tool. We can talk about whether the asylum system should be revised. We are in favor of a fair but efficient asylum system, but we can't continue to misuse the public health laws. The White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the administration will comply with the order and is advancing preparations to manage the border when Title 42 eventually lifts. When do you ultimately expect this to be resolved? You know, it's, it's hard to say. We are hoping that this spring Title 42 will end, but we'll have to see what the court does. I think it cannot end soon enough. There's just too many people who have been sent back to rape, torture, death, and persecution. All right. That is Lee Gallant of the American Civil Liberties Union. Thank you very much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. For years, Taiwan has lived under the threat of attack from its much larger neighbor, China. This year, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is spurring Taiwan to start preparing for the worst-case scenario, however unlikely. Taiwan's president announced this week she will extend military conscription from four months to one year. But as NPR's Emily Fang reports, Taiwan has a long way to go. 29-year-old Yo Guanjun did not tell his parents he was quitting his job as a coffee bean distributor to go and volunteer to fight in Ukraine. They actually found out I was there when they were watching the evening news. After making it to Ukraine, Yao served as a medical and logistics officer that often meant ferrying munitions to Ukrainian soldiers during active fighting. I was extremely terrified. The sound of the artillery, the earth exploding near your head. You have to experience it for yourself to know what it's like. But what's very important is other people have gone through this and survived and can teach others so they survive too. That's why Yao is now back in Taiwan with the lessons he learned in Ukraine. The number of weapons or soldiers you have don't matter. It matters how you use them. He wants to train his fellow citizens in case of a potential Chinese invasion. We can't make our defense someone else's responsibility. We have to prepare ourselves mentally to be ready. Taiwan now lives under the vague threat of invasion from China. But the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the absolute consolidation of power under China's leader Xi Jinping, and a much more powerful Chinese PLA, their military, has made that threat feel much more immediate than in decades past. We have to wake up. We don't have too much time to prepare ourselves anymore. This is Admiral Li Ximing. In the 1990s, he was head of a Taiwanese submarine unit monitoring a far inferior Chinese Navy and knew Taiwan was far stronger militarily. But the tables have turned, Li says. Until 2017, Admiral Li was Taiwan's defense chief. Since retiring, he's broken with Taiwan's tight-knit military establishment to warn Taiwan is not ready for any fight with China. One of his biggest criticisms is Taiwan's big weapons purchases from the U.S. He's the most well-known proponent of a broad concept called asymmetric warfare, using smaller, mobile units of people and weapons to defend and attack a strategy used successfully by Ukrainian soldiers. We need to develop a large amount of the uh, land-based mobile anti-ship missiles. We need a large number of the uh, mobile air defense system instead of the large number of the fighter jets. 
But Taiwan's military establishment has been slow to react, Li says. It continues to run outdated military exercises, and its army reservists are poorly trained. Paul Huang, a researcher at the Taiwan Public Opinion Foundation, says the focus on heavy weaponry gives Taiwan's military easy photo ops, but no fighting advantage if there were ever war with China. No matter what kind of tanks, no matter what kind of artillery they have, they're going to die. They're going to get destroyed because they have been preparing for the wrong war. They have been doing exercises, deployments, training completely wrong. Taiwan is making some changes. It is expanding compulsory military training for all young men to one year. Taiwan's also launched the All-Out Defense Mobilization Office to boost its reservist system, an effort partly modeled after Ukraine's civilian territorial defense. Ordinary people are now proactively doing what they can to prepare too, by taking civil defense classes. Numerous organizations offer this training now, and the classes nearly always sell out. On one recent Saturday, about four dozen people of all ages crowded into this requisition church space. They're learning basic first aid and emergency response techniques. This class is offered by a civic engagement organization called the Forward Alliance. Enoch Wu is a rising political star in Taiwan who founded the organization, and he explains why he started the classes. I think facing this, our current challenge, uh, you know, our very current challenge of our very national existence, uh, this it's also going to rely on our uh, engaged citizens to to really uh, to take a stand. Ukraine had eight years to prepare between the Russian invasion of Crimea and the war this year, Wu says. That's why it's good Taiwan is starting now. But no one knows if that is soon enough. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei, Taiwan. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In Colorado, the state's nearly $2 billion marijuana industry finally had a bad year. For the first time since legalization in 2014, sales declined, down more than 20 percent. Colorado Public Radio's Ben Marcus reports it's a post-pandemic hangover. Just off the freeway in North Denver, among shabby-looking warehouses, the slight smell of marijuana on the streets signals that this is the city's de facto marijuana farmland. It's freezing and dry outside, but inside one of these warehouses, it feels tropical, warm and bright and humid, filled with tall green plants. This operation is owned by Matt Huron of Good Chemistry Nurseries. You're looking at my 401k right now. (laughs) It is not cheap to build one of these, but much to his chagrin, Huron is now competing with a bunch of new grows. It all started when the pandemic lockdowns led to a boom in demand. For the first time, legal cannabis sales hit $2 billion in Colorado in 2020. Investment rushed into every level of the industry, but especially grows. Everyone saw the lines around the corner. Cannabis is pandemic proof, right? Well, you know, it takes, you know, it takes a good year and a half to build one of these things. But by the time they opened, vaccines had become widespread. Pot lost some of its appeal, as people weren't just sitting at home streaming Netflix anymore. 
Huron and the other Denver growers saw what was happening, and they pulled back production. But at the same time, counties all over Colorado had already approved new grows, like out in rural Crowley County, where Roy Elliott is a county commissioner. It's still a pretty sore subject in the county. Uh... Colorado lets governments ban marijuana businesses, and like most rural counties, Crowley initially didn't allow grow houses. Being mostly right-leaning county, a lot of people aren't uh, too fond of marijuana grows. But it's only got 6,000 residents, half of whom are inmates at the local private prison. In 2016, Crowley okayed pot farms. But nothing materialized until the pandemic. And almost overnight, it became the eighth largest producing county in Colorado. It hit that boom after, after COVID, and I think too many people got, got into it. Now, Elliot says some of those grows are closing permanently, and many are still sitting on a lot of marijuana that hasn't hit the market yet, which means the supply glut will last into 2023. Christopher Steffen is a real estate broker who specializes in cannabis. He says that's bad because consumer demand never bounced back. You know, Black Friday used to be a big day for us, and it hit with a thud. Marijuana tax collections have fallen by more than $90 million this year. It funds everything from school construction to addiction treatment. Stefan says during the pandemic, businesses were expanding rapidly, courted by big money investors. Now they're unraveling. Uh, And now you're meeting with lawyers all day and you're fighting your partners and your best friends. Back in Denver at Matt Huron's Grow Warehouse, he says marijuana has become like the hyper-competitive restaurant industry, where some will do well. And then there's a gazillion other guys that open up a restaurant and they're out of business in a year. And that's really what the cannabis industry is now. And just like a restaurant, Huron hopes to distinguish his good chemistry stores by focusing on quality, on proprietary marijuana he spent years cultivating, appealing to the discerning customer. For NPR News, I'm Ben Marcus in Denver. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and online at WBUR.org. I'm Josie Guarino. Want to stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston and get first crack at tickets? Sign up for the WBUR events newsletter. Go to WBUR.org slash newsletters. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. In weather, clear skies tonight, dropping down to low 20s. Tomorrow, a blend of sun and clouds. Still brisk for tomorrow, little milder. Highs reaching the mid-40s. Thursday, a good dose of sunshine, high near 50. Mild for Friday, a mix of sun and clouds. Highs in the low 50s. Right now, we have 34 degrees in Boston. The time is 549. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. WBUR's independent journalism is essential to our democracy. Listener support is what keeps WBUR independent. It's the largest share of our funding. As you make tax-deductible year-end contributions to organizations that make a positive difference in your life and in our communities, put WBUR on your list. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Sarah McCammon. It can be hard to find a moment to just rest. And when you can find the time, you might feel like you should be working on something instead. But rest can be a form of resistance. I don't want to be under the guise of believing that I have to be productive in order to be deemed worthy. I am enough now. Trisha Hersey founded the Nap Ministry back in 2016. She uses performance art, social media, and photography to promote the healing power of rest. She's the author of Rest is Resistance. And for NPR's Life Kit, Shireen Marisol Miraji spoke with Hersey, starting with the four tenets of the Nap Ministry. Tenant number one. Rest is a form of resistance because it pushes back and disrupts white supremacy and capitalism. Number two. Our bodies are a site of liberation. And that brings into the somatics the idea that wherever our bodies are, we can find rest. Three. Naps provide a portal to imagine, invent, and heal. And tenant number four. Our dream space has been stolen and we want it back. We will reclaim it via rest. I really want to talk more about tenant number one. Rest is a form of resistance because it disrupts and pushes back against capitalism and white supremacy. This book is so much more than encouraging people to take naps. Oh my God. (laughs) This is about more than naps. Thank you for saying that. I said so much. It's a paradigm shift. It's mind altering. It's um, culture shifting. It's a full on politics of refusal. We have been brainwashed by this system to believe these things about rest, about our bodies, about our worth. This violent culture that wants to see us working 24 hours a day, that doesn't view us as a a human being, but instead views our divine bodies as a machine. And so when I think about the first tenet and this idea of disrupting and pushing back, for me, when we are on in a system that we're on that's under capitalism, that doesn't look at people as people, they look at profit, white supremacy, they don't see um, the divinity in all of us. And so these two systems working in collaboration, we can push back against them. But even if we're off the clock and saying no intentionally for 10 minutes, Our insistence on being like, not today, you can't have me for these 30 minutes. This little (laughs) small disruption. I'm thinking about my ancestors who slowed down production in cotton fields and who did these, this quiet quitting that's happening. You've been hearing about this idea of quiet quitting where people are going to work but not giving as much. Yeah, and so I feel like it's all in this same idea of disruption, of pushing back, of saying no. Let's go back to our brainwashing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Because I 100 percent am a victim of this brainwashing, Mm -hmm. uh, especially the thing that you talk about where, you know, we think that the more we do, the more worth we have. I am 100 percent guilty of that kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. So, Trisha, how do I deprogram? How do I (laughs) stop thinking that the more I produce, the more I do, the more I say yes, the more worth I have? What I will say to you is that it's going to be slow. It is not going to be a quick tip advice that I can give you and just be like, this is going to work for you. It's really going to be a slow uncovering, um, a slow mercy and grace towards yourself. I tell people to rest through the guilt, take it slow, 
understand, be aware, be aware that it's happening and then start to go deeper into the wells of yourself to begin to, to begin to see what could help to help you heal. Like this work is about listening and about connecting with the body. Trisha, what are the health benefits from taking the time to prioritize rest from napping? Yes. You know, I talk a lot about my divinity degree, but I have an undergrad degree in public health and community health. So I know the beauty of looking at this message from the science of sleep. The CDC have named sleep deprivation as a public health crisis. Three of the top diseases, high blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, can be linked back to sleep deprivation. And so when we aren't sleeping, our organs don't have a chance to regenerate. And then from a brain level, when we sleep, the brain is like bathed in this chemical that helps people to like process trauma and it helps your creativity, memory retention, and you're able to like really heal your body. So I tell people, maybe this work can't land in your mind and spirit from a political level. Maybe you can't right now jump on the whole spiritual idea of it, but just to look at what is happening from a health um, level, from biologically, from um, neurologically, what we're doing to our bodies when we're exhausted, when we're burnt out, over a sustained amount of time, it is killing us. It is causing more disease to take root in our bodies. It's not allowing us to live to our full potential. So for all those bodies out there who just, they just have to be doing something yeah, yeah. in order to feel alive. Yes. Like, how, how do they, how do we force our bodies to rest, to stop? I think the idea of active rest, anything that can slow your body down enough that you can connect with your body and mind. And so I was taking dance classes and ballet and mm -hmm. somatic dance classes when I was in graduate school. And I found that to be one of the most ultimate forms of rest when I was learning how to spin and do turns and, you know, moving my body. So I really thought that dancing was really a beautiful active form of rest for me. I love walking and being in nature, you know, just being able to like, move your body in a way that is um, slowed down and it, it isn't being moved for the idea of labor. You know, when I think about hobbies and how everyone is like monetizing their hobbies right now, and I'm like, no, that's capitalism telling <laughs> right, you yeah. that you need to like monetize crocheting. Like my sister is a beautiful fiber artist and she says to her, that's the most meditative restful state when she's crocheting blankets for people and she refuses to sell them. She's like, if I do that, because then it will become capitalism, making it not fun. And it's all linked back to trying to make money. She does it for the meditation, for the connection, and because she loves to do it. There's this point you make in the book, which for me is so key. You say resting and recharging and rejuvenating is not so that we can grind more. <laughs> it's not so that we can prepare ourselves to, you know, give more output to capitalism. That is not actually what this is about. Not at all. At all. Not at <laughs> all. People get it twisted and think that's what it's about because a lot of corporations are pushing this idea. They're saying, have our employees rest more. You guys can have a nap room here so that you can be more productive when you come to work so that we can pay less in health insurance premiums. So, we're not resting to get ourselves more riled up to be on capitalism's clock. We are resting simply because it is our divine and human right to do so, period. There's no nothing else on the end of that sentence. It is the end of it. 
That was Trisha Hersey of the Nat Ministry speaking with Shireen Marisol-Maraji for NPR's Life Kit. And if you're feeling a bit more rested and thinking about the changes you want to make in 2023, check out Life Kit's Resolution Planner. The tool helps you mix and match over 40 ideas for resolutions, including some to improve your mental health. It's at npr.org slash New Year's. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families, IWPR.org. And from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR and online at WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Josie Guarino. In sports tonight, the Bruins play the Senators in Ottawa. Puck drops at 7. And at the Garden, the Celtics host the Houston Rockets at 7.30. In weather, starlit skies tonight, temperatures in the low 20s. Right now, we have 34 degrees in Boston at a minute before 6 o'clock. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at BSO.org. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Southwest Airlines has canceled thousands of flights in the last few days, leaving holiday travelers stranded across the country. There are all of these wrinkles and layers contributing to what is an unprecedented meltdown and one of the worst airline meltdowns in the last decade. It's Tuesday, December 27th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Josie Guarino, in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, Russia is isolated, sanctioned, and struggling militarily in Ukraine. 2022 was a bad year for Russia and President Vladimir Putin. The FBI has released its annual statistics on hate crimes across the country, but researchers say the data is flawed. And pop culture could hinder the public's understanding of the growing dangers of wildfires. At 6.30, Marketplace will have all the day's business news. It's 6.01. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that Title 42, the pandemic-era policy that largely prevented migrants from entering the U.S., will stay in place for now. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports the decision comes as thousands of migrants have been arriving at the southern border in recent weeks. Title 42 was set to expire on December 21st, but in a 5-4 ruling, the Supreme Court has granted a request from 19 mostly Republican-led states to prevent the measure from winding down. 
The court agreed to come back to consider the issue in its February session. Under Title 42, immigration authorities were able to quickly remove many of the migrants they encountered without giving them a chance to ask for asylum protection. The public health order was put in place by the Trump administration in March 2020 when COVID-19 was beginning to surge. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. And the White House says it will comply with the Supreme Court order over Title 42, but will work on a more permanent effort to manage the border in a, quote, secure, orderly and humane way when Title 42 eventually lifts. At least 20 people are dead, 28 people rather, at least 20 people are dead in the city of Buffalo, New York, as the result of a holiday weekend's historic blizzard and bomb cyclone, 28 in Erie County overall. And Piers Liz Baker reports that number, though, is expected to rise further. Law enforcement are still doing search and recovery and welfare checks in Buffalo, and ambulance crews are using high-traction vehicles to reach snowed-in people with medical emergencies. Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown says all stranded motorists are believed to have been rescued, and the focus now turns to clearing snow and abandoned vehicles, something made more difficult difficult by residents walking and driving on dangerous roads to reach stores for needed supplies or check on loved ones. Erie County Executive Mark Polencars begged people to stay home. Be very careful when you're out there, if you're walking along the roads where this emergency equipment is because they may not be able to see you. National Guard and out-of-state police have been called in to enforce the city's driving ban. Liz Baker, NPR News. Taiwan is extending its period of mandatory military service from four months to a year as it faces increased Chinese military aggression. NPR's Emily Fang reports. Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen announced the move at a national security meeting. Let us show the courage and determination to protect our homeland and defend democracy, she said in a speech to senior officials. Taiwan has compulsory military training for all young men on the self-ruled island, as well as a reservist system with approximately 2.3 million people. However, both programs have been criticized for their poor training. Tsai said compulsory training would be intensified and bolstered by help from U.S. forces. China is just across a narrow channel of water from Taiwan and over the weekend held another round of military exercises in the air and waters around Taiwan. Emily Fang, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Josie Guarino and for Lisa Mullins. Incoming Bristol County Sheriff Paul Hero says he does not plan to make sweeping changes when he begins a job in January. Hero met with longtime Sheriff Thomas Hodgson at the Bristol County Jail during a transition meeting today. Hero says a primary focus will involve keeping people safe and reducing inmate recidivism. There's things we can do internally within the jail, and then there's, once somebody's released, we don't have any more custody over them, but we can set them up with uh, post-release planning, like discharge planning, housing, health care, and a job. Hodgson in November. Hodgson held the position for 25 years. Massachusetts lawmakers feel hopeful that 2023 could be the year medically assisted death becomes law. Just a decade ago, a ballot measure allowing a doctor to help a terminally ill person end their life with medication was defeated by a narrow margin. Members of the disability rights community advocated for several new safeguards since then. State Senator Joe Comerford has proposed a bill to allow the practice and says public opinion has also changed. I really hope this is the session that we pass this bill, because now, you know, over the arc of the bill's life, it both has been strengthened, but also the public understanding of what this bill represents is also strengthened and clarified. 
Earlier this month, the state's highest court ruled that the issue is best left to the democratic process. The North Atlantic right whale population continues to decline and should remain on the endangered species list. That's according to the latest five-year review by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The new data is part of a regular reporting required for animals protected under the Endangered Species Act. The federal government estimates there are just over 330 of the marine mammals left in the world. Federal scientists also say the right whale numbers are not improving under a previous plan issued to guide the species recovery. The Massachusetts State Lottery will introduce a $50 lottery ticket for the first time next year. The state will begin sales of the billion-dollar extravaganza scratch ticket in early February. Officials with Mass Lottery say they expect sales of the new ticket to exceed $1.5 billion. It's 6.06, and weather, we're looking at starlit skies for tonight. Temperatures dip into the mid-20s. Tomorrow, a blend of sun and clouds, a high of around 40. Thursday, mostly sunny, highs in the mid-40s. Right now, we have 34 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by FJC, a foundation of philanthropic funds working to meet the needs of the nonprofit sector through donor-advised funds, fiscal sponsorships, and bridge lending. More at FJC.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Sarah McCammon. For more than a decade, Russian President Vladimir Putin has held court in an annual press conference near the end of the year. But not this year. The Kremlin canceled those plans in what many saw as Putin trying to avoid inconvenient questions about the war in Ukraine and what many observers think has shaped up to be a bad year for the Russian leader, his country and its economy. Joining us from Moscow is NPR's Charles Maines. Hi, Charles. Hi there. So let's start with this idea that along with the mere fact of the devastation caused by Russia's war against Ukraine, it's just been a bad year politically and strategically for Vladimir Putin. Why? Well, just think where things started. You know, in the first days after Putin announced he was sending Russian troops into Ukraine, he was supremely confident. Here's a speech on February 25th in which he called on the Ukrainian army to flip sides. Take power into your own hands, Putin told them. Don't sacrifice the lives of your families and friends to defend what he called drug addicts and Nazis in Kiev who had taken the country hostage. You know, and on the one hand, Putin continues to project a sense of confidence in his military. Everything is going according to plan has really become his go-to response to any questions about Ukraine. And yet these initial assurances of an overwhelming victory are clearly now a harder sell. All you have to do is look at the calendar. Right. So we're 10 months in and Ukraine's army not only did not surrender, they've reclaimed much of the territory that was seized by Russia. So what does the military picture look like from where you sit in Moscow? Well, not great. Uh, Russian forces obviously failed to take the capital, Kiev, also Ukraine's second city, Kharkiv. They've suffered symbolic losses like the sinking of the Moskva flagship cruiser in April in the Black Sea. Russia was also forced to withdraw on Ukraine's north and south, including parts of these four Ukrainian territories Uh, Russia illegally annexed following sham referendums. The Kremlin uh, has always explained away all these setbacks. The Moskva, they say, uh, sank due to a fire on board, uh, not a missile strike, as most believe. 
these troop withdrawals they say are tactical or temporary. And of course, Russia's also reverted to this winter barrage of missile strikes on critical infrastructure to try and freeze Ukraine into submission, although it hasn't worked. So bottom line, it's it's been 10 months of fighting, and militarily, uh, Russia doesn't have a lot to show for it. In retaliation for Russia's invasion, the West has launched wave after wave of sanctions on Russia, of course. What's been the impact on the Russian economy? Well, you know, sanctions against an economy the size of Russia's were really unprecedented. No one really knew how it would affect Russia or the rest of the global economy. So this is actually tape at a Moscow bank as people, including me, tried to get money out after the local currency, the ruble, tanked in March. Uh, President Biden at the time famously said sanctions had reduced the ruble to rubble. Uh, But you know what? The the ruble came back, uh, admittedly through price controls, and Russia seemed to weather the sanctions storm better than many expected, mostly thanks to its oil and gas exports, and Putin took a victory lap. The economic blitzkrieg against Russia has failed, said Putin in the speech in June, as he claimed sanctions had done more harm to those who issued them in the West than to Russia. Now, Now, just a quick fact check. It's true Europe in particular has struggled with high energy prices as Russia has turned off the, the tap on most gas exports to the EU. But, you know, as we sit here in December, Russia's economy ultimately shrunk by two and a half percent this year, uh, far from the collapse many were predicting, but also not exactly something to celebrate. But I think the question is, for how long? I mean, can the Russian economy continue to weather this for the long term? Well, that's just it. You know, the fundamental problems from sanctions keep intensifying. The Western penalties on Russian oil and gas are starting to take hold. The ruble is again sliding. Uh, Meanwhile, Russian companies can't get imported Western parts, and that's put a stranglehold on key industries says Natalia Zubarevich, a leading specialist on Russia's regional economy. Russia is a country heavily tied to globalization, she notes. And the more complex the manufacturing in question, the more heavily it relies on imported parts. So Zubarevich warns soon whole sectors of the economy could go dark for the simplest of reasons. Russia simply can't produce the finished product. And much of the country's labor force has left. Hundreds of thousands of Russians have fled the country since the start of the war. How has that affected things, though? Well, there have been several waves of Russians, uh, young men in particular leaving the country, first in February with the outbreak of the conflict, uh, then again in September when Putin called up an additional 300,000 troops in a public mobilization drive. And with that exodus, Russia really lost a generation of young and talented people. It's it's no accident that some countries that have absorbed these people, uh, places like Armenia, Georgia, they're seeing their economies grow even as there's occasionally uneasy attitudes uh, towards the Russian presence. Charles, how popular is the war with ordinary Russians? I mean, do we have a good sense of that? Well, there's a lot of debate here on that front. Uh, government polls show some 70 or 80 percent of the population support Putin's moves. But skeptics question the legitimacy of those numbers. You know, people like Alexei Minailo, he's an opposition politician who says these opinion polls are weaponized uh, to create what he calls illusions of majorities. They see uh, polls, they say, oh, that's 80 percent uh, are for the war. Uh, All right. Uh, So then the question, uh, do you believe Putin's propaganda? But if the Russian people, by and large, were really against this war, wouldn't they let it be known? I mean, Russian soldiers are also dying. Many Russian families have close ties to Ukrainians. 
Yeah, it's true, although I don't think we can discount the role of fear. You know, draconian laws passed after February have ultimately banned any public discussion of the leadership or the military. Uh, we've seen nearly 20,000 arrests of Russians who protested the government's actions, with some facing years in prison. Also, the media. You know, nearly every independent Russian media outlet closed or fled abroad after the government criminalized reporting on the war. So state propaganda and the conspiracies they push really dominate the mediascape now. So, Charles, you've painted this very grim picture here of a leader and, in many ways, a country that's angry and struggling. So what happens next? Where do things go from here? You know, well, oddly enough, both the Kremlin and its critics agree that 2023 is shaping up to be a defining year. Uh, President Putin talks about a realignment of the world order as Russia is now engaged in this existential battle with the West. And Putin's critics, for very different reasons, agree. They say Putin has so badly miscalculated in Ukraine that we're witnessing the beginning of the end of the Putin era. Uh, but that's something people have said for years. And whatever happens, uh, I think a lot of Russians know the state has tools in place to crush dissent. So conversations are, are moving to private spaces. You know, Like in Soviet times, it's in the kitchen around the table where that fundamental question, where is Russia headed, is now most hotly debated. NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Thanks so much, Charles. Thank you. After nearly a week of airlines canceling thousands of flights a day, President Biden says his administration will hold carriers accountable. The Department of Transportation singled out Southwest, calling its high rate of delays and cancellations unacceptable. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports on what went wrong. When I reached Skyler Lenz in New York City, his family had spent four days trying to get back home to Denver after their Southwest flight was canceled. Now he just rented a car for the 26-hour drive. There's a place about uh, halfway through in Illinois, 13 hours from here and 13 hours from Denver. So our goal is to take a quick breather at the hotel and then pick it up again so we can be there Thursday night. He says his six- and seven-year-olds are struggling, but it's not like he had a choice. We looked at um, taking a train from um, New York to Denver, but those were booked. Uh, Greyhound was booked. Um, we've looked just about everything, other surrounding airports. Last-minute flights would have been eleven dollars to $12,000 for the four of them. Southwest has canceled more than 60% of its flights over the busy Christmas week, far more than other airlines. Frustrated family members tell NPR they've had elderly relatives or those with disabilities stuck alone in airports. Others say they're out thousands of dollars in hotel fees and other non-refundables. And Southwest is still rebooking days out. Taylor McLean's flight from Chicago back home to Salt Lake City isn't until Thursday. Three, four days of vacation time. That'll go to waste just because they can't get me on a plane. And then four full days at least of paying for the dog to, to stay in the kennel still. Like many, McLean was most upset at shoddy customer service, starting with his flight to Chicago. While I finally got on a plane to leave at 9 p.m., I was still getting text messages saying, hey, your flight is now at 6 p.m., like three, four hours late. All this from an airline that's been beloved and known for excellent customer service. My colleague Scott Newman asked analysts what went wrong, and they said it's about much more than last week's devastating winter storm. In short, everything possible has gone wrong for Southwest, including, you know, some problems of their own making. Kyle Potter edits the website Thrifty Traveler. He says all airlines still face staffing problems made worse by the storm and by COVID and other respiratory illnesses. But he says Southwest's technology is in bad need of updating. Elaine Becker agrees she's an airlines analyst with Cowan & Company. 
it's not only the customer facing systems, it's their crew scheduling and so on. And Southwest just has, has always been a laggard when it's come to technology. She and others also point to Southwest's lack of large hubs where it's easier to bring in backup staffing. Instead, pilots may not live where they fly out of and may fly to four, five or six destinations a day. So backfilling that can be a nightmare. In a statement, Southwest said it recognizes it's fallen short, and our heartfelt apologies for this are just beginning. Industry analyst Potter says that's a start, but only. He says time and again, one airline or another has failed this way, but only customers have paid the price. That lack of accountability gives airlines across the country you know, free reign to keep running these razor-thin margins where mass delays and cancellations is just a storm or a mechanics strike or an IT software issue away. He hopes the massive number of travelers upended this time will lead to an industry-wide reckoning. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Josie Guarino. The time is 618. Coming up on All Things Considered, the FBI recently released its annual statistics on hate crimes across the country. But researchers say the data is flawed, which could undermine efforts to tackle hate crimes. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. In business news, Boston is taking a closer look at whether underutilized office buildings can be transformed for other uses. The city's planning and development agency is studying the feasibility of office conversions downtown to address vacancy rates that have gone up since the pandemic. Possible new uses include housing and labs. The agency's interim director of planning, Kenan Ryan, says... High office vacancy rates make it difficult to support other businesses like retail, restaurants, and entertainment. It's a really important challenge that we need to address if we want to maintain Boston as the region's main street in a way. Ryan hopes the feasibility study will be done by the end of the summer. National games with huge jackpots this year have nearly closed a revenue gap of more than $60 million as of September. On Wall Street, the Dow closed up 37 points at 33,241. The Nasdaq finished the day down 144 points at 10,353. And the S&P 500 closed down 15 points at 3829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Spring semester starts January 23rd. SemesterOff.com. 
Saturday is your last chance to make a tax-deductible gift to WBUR for 2022. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. In weather, starlit skies tonight. Temperatures dip into the mid-20s. Tomorrow, a blend of sun and clouds, a high of around 40. Right now, it's 34 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Sarah McCammon. The FBI recently released their annual statistics on hate crimes across the country, but researchers say the data is flawed and that could undermine efforts to tackle hate crimes. NPR's Sergio Olmos has been digging into these stats and he joins us now. Hi, Sergio. Hey, Sarah. So what does this latest FBI report say about hate crimes in America, first of all? The FBI hate crime statistics reported that last year there were 7,262 hate crimes across the country. That's a slight decrease from the year before, but researchers say that those numbers may paint an incomplete picture. Law enforcement agencies volunteer to participate. They're not required to send in in their data to the FBI. There's 18,000 agencies across the country, and last year only about two-thirds of those agencies sent in any data. And you might imagine that some of those agencies are small police departments or sheriffs in rural towns, you know, stubbornly refusing to send in their stats, except that that's not the case. The largest cities in America, New York, L.A., Chicago, didn't contribute any data. And is this the only way that the government tracks hate crimes? There's other ways. That's the interesting part. I talked to Evan Holder at the University of Florida, who published a study looking at 18 years of the FBI's hate crime statistics He compared it to a different set of data collected by the Bureau of Justice Statistics, widely seen as a more reliable indicator of hate crime stats. So instead of a police officer taking a report, it's researchers asking people directly about their experience to crime, and people tend to open up more. Here's how Even Holder described it. What that database tells us is that, you know, there's 200 to 300,000 hate crime incidents in a given year. And the UCR FBI data records less than 10,000 of them. And Holder says that even if you look at that data, Last year, 80 percent of the 15,000 agencies that participated reported zero hate crime incidents. Zero hate crimes. I mean, is that is that reliable? Is that even possible? There's a mix of reasons why that happens. Some victims may not see themselves as a victim of a hate crime, and some police departments may record, for example, an assault without labeling it a hate crime. And that may be because it's a higher burden of proof uh, to prove the motivation behind a crime. I talked to Jacob Kaplan, who's a professional specialist at the, uh, at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. Uh, let's listen to how he described it. There needs to be evidence of bias that plays at least a small part in the crime. And then the police need to have actual evidence, not just like, I think I was a victim of a hate crime. They need some kind of evidence that suggests that bias was a motivating factor. So even among police departments that are making a sincere effort to track hate crimes in their district, it's still a challenge. So, Sergio, what could this incomplete data you're describing mean in terms of trying to police hate crimes in the future? So police and community relationships are already stressed, and researchers say that not taking identity-based crimes seriously contributes to a vicious circle where victims of hate may be less likely to turn to the police to solve their problems and police record less of those, and so on, undermining the overall legitimacy of police as, as an institution, especially in marginalized communities. 
The Justice Department themselves acknowledge how difficult it is to draw any conclusions from this data set because of the inconsistent ways cities are reporting hate crimes year by year. And even if all cities that participated reported their data, uh, among law enforcement, there's just not a universal agreement on what constitutes a hate crime. For example, a mass shooting last year in Atlanta at spa and massage parlors that left eight people dead, including six people who were Asian, were not counted as a hate crime in these stats. Uh, so these flawed numbers could mask a very real problem at a time of rising domestic extremism. NPR's Sergio Olmos, thanks so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. TV shows and movies about wildfires like the new CBS drama Fire Country are hugely popular. All right, guys, this is a real baptism by fire. By the end of the night, I'm going to know what kind of a man you are. Not everyone is a fan of these offerings, including many firefighters. That's because the entertainment industry doesn't always get it right when it comes to fighting wildfires in a time of accelerated climate change, as NPR's Chloe Veltman reports. Movies and TV shows about wildfires haven't changed much since they first blazed across our screens in the middle of the last century. It was clearly a job for the smoke jumpers. Melodramatic scenes of heroic, cleft-chinned firefighters charging fearlessly at enemy fires were a thing back in the 1950s in movies like Red Skies of Montana. A half dozen of these hard-hitting, specially trained firefighters dropped from the air a few hours from now would be worth a thousand men later on. And the over-romanticised view of wildfires is still very much a thing today. Megan Bolton is a firefighter in Eugene, Oregon. She says it's high time Hollywood let go of these exaggerated, oversimplified and often inaccurate clichés. Its aim is to entertain more than it is to inform. Instead, Bolton says, Hollywood should share messages about things like the usefulness of controlled burns to clear out overgrown brush, the public's role in wildfire prevention, and how climate change is turning wildlands across the world into tinderboxes. Introducing the complexity of the conversation that's actually happening in fire and climate change and fuels management would be a huge help. The problem is watching fire prevention and control methods like a homeowner raking leaves off their lawn or a firefighter digging a ditch doesn't exactly make for scintillating screen time. Where's the action? Where's the drama? Arizona State University historian Steve Pine studies the portrayal of wildfires in mass entertainment. It's very easy to tell the disaster and war story. It's much harder to tell the story of preventative stuff. Pine says despite the dramaturgical challenges, the entertainment industry has a responsibility to get the messaging right because of its enormous reach. I mean, most people are not reading policy statements. They're not reading the Journal of Ecology. They will get it in popular forms. This thing's going to rip right into town. We'll make our stand. Right here. Water drop! God, I love this job. The new CBS series Fire Country, about a group of prisoners turned volunteer firefighters in Northern California, is aflame with the usual pyrotechnics and melodrama. The show has been publicly criticised by firefighters. Fire Country executive producer Tony Phelan says he understands the pushback. But we're not making a documentary 
And so there are certain compromises that we make for dramatic purposes. Yet Fire Country does offer a spark of hope in terms of the work Hollywood needs to do to integrate topics like fire prevention and climate change into storylines. You know, as I was driving over here, I was thinking, sometimes a bunch of fire citations can be just that. And, uh... This moment from episode oh, seven involves a local resident no trying unsuccessfully to get no out of paying a fine for not clearing no the wood around his property. Not very sexy, but executive producer Tony Phelan says scenes like this one matter. We certainly have a responsibility to tell people about what it means to have development encroaching into these woodland areas. And in order to many times save property, we are putting people's lives at risk. He says audiences can expect to see more climate change related content on Fire Country as the season continues. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Josie Guarino. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Daring Monday, January 30th at City Space for a conversation and food tasting with celebrity chef Tiffany Faison. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's just about 6.30. Coming up next, it's Marketplace. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. You can give the gift of a holiday meal for just $30. Donate at gbfb.org slash WBUR.